This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on double one double eight five kilohertz. That is on the 31 meter band if you are in West Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za. I'm with One Lentzinti, Amanda Machaka and Neto Chemane. Your top stories. Zimbabwe will hold its general election on July 30. Thousands of women and girls who survived the brutal rule of the Boko Haram have since been further abused by Nigerian security forces. This is according to Amnesty International. Labour Union SAFTU says South Africa's landmark minimum wage bill is an insult to workers. In economics, AgriSA has welcomed the passing of South Africa's national minimum wage. And in sport, newly appointed Springbok captain Sia Kolisi says he was overcome with emotion when announced as captain and that it was a proud and humbling moment. On Elensinzi has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Zimbabweans outside the country will not be allowed in the 30th July presidential and parliamentary general elections. This is the judgment handed down by the Constitutional Court of Zimbabwe against three Zimbabwean applicants represented by the Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights and the Southern African Litigation. The applicants unsuccessfully argued that the residency requirement imposed by the country's Electoral Act contravened the Constitution, which provides for political rights of every Zimbabwe citizen, irrespective of where they are. Diplomats are the only Zimbabweans outside the country who can currently cast their ballots. Meanwhile, more than half of Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU PF members of parliament have lost their primaries to represent the party in the upcoming July 30 elections. 90 out of the 196 ZANU PF MPs lost in their primaries. Party leader and president Emerson Nangagwa announced the list of candidates on Wednesday, warning those who lost not to destabilize the party. The party seats currently make up 73% of the 270 seats of the House of Assembly, and it remains to be seen if the new cases will uphold this performance in post-Mugabe elections. Two African migrants died of thirst and 80 were saved after they were stranded in the Niger desert while trying to reach Europe. The International Office of Migration says the migrants had been heading to Libya, the crossing point of the hazardous voyage to Europe where their vehicles broke down and they were abandoned by the smugglers. They were stranded for three days before help arrived. The agency says it has helped to save more than 3,000 people this year alone through the search and rescue team run by Nigerian NGOs. In 2015, Niger introduced a law making people smuggling punishable by a jail term of up to 30 years. 
Ukrainian police are investigating what they believe is the targeted killing of a prominent Russian journalist and a government critic. Okadi Bachkenko was shot at his home in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, on Tuesday. He left Russia last year, saying he feared for his life. The BBC's John Fishers has more. Arkady Babchenko was a prominent critic of Vladimir Putin and his policies, both in Ukraine and Syria. And it appears that may well have cost him his life. Having already fled Russia early last year, Mr. Babchenko returned on Tuesday night to his apartment in Kiev. As he approached the door, he was shot several times in the back. The Ukrainian authorities have been quick to point the finger at Moscow. The Prime Minister said he was convinced that Mr. Babchenko had been killed because of his honesty and principles. Lastly, the opposition in Madagascar has petitioned the country's top court to unseat 18 of its lawmakers who crossed the floor to join the ruling party. The move comes just days after the same constitutional court ordered the president to form a unity government. This is said what this said was in a bid to end a political crisis that has plagued the island nation for more than a month. In the decision on Friday, the court also said a consensus prime minister must be appointed to lead the country until general elections expected by the end of September. The crisis has triggered international concern with the African Union, the United Nations and regional bloc Southern African Development Community all dispatching envoys. Channel African News, I am Onilinsinsi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mvalelwa Kina Miriam Mlopo Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África A voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park Cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul Sochitika Mu África Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Be a part of the conversation by tweeting us on Channel Africa 1. That is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Your time is 17.07. Let's go to Zimbabwe, a country that will hold its general election on July 30. The first election since the army forced a 94-year-old former president Robert Mugabe to resign last November. Emerson Mnangagwa, who became president for the military takeover unveiled the date in the official Zimbabwe government gazette. Mugabe has ruled Zimbabwe for nearly four decades. To look at the current situation in Zimbabwe since the country's new political dispensation, we're now joined on the line by P.S. Pigu, who is Southern Africa Director at the International Crisis Group. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, P.S. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the listeners. 
Um, now, Zimbabwe is holding elections. In fact, it's just around the corner. Um, what's to be expected? Will ZANU-PF win that um, election? Well, you know, it's it's uh, uh, ZANU-PF has uh, the advantage of incumbency, uh, which you know, after 38 years in power gives it a significant advantage. The, the electoral playing field is by no means even, but we are in a very different space to the last few elections, and one in which there are a number of uh, variables in play which we haven't seen before, including a very significant number of young people now on a new voters' role, uh, greater political space for opposition parties to engage in, uh, and a new environment from the administration of uh, Mr. Munangagwa, which is preaching a very different tune to its predecessors. Um, it seems like the main opposition is uh, Chamisa as coalition that will have even former Vice President Joyce Mujuru joining it. Um, what's to be expected there? Well, you know, we've seen the MDC Alliance, which is a grouping of seven parties uh, with the main formation of the Movement for Democratic Change, Changarai, uh, with the new leader, Nelson Chamisa. I mean, there has been this breakaway and there's contested space in the uh, in the courts uh, from uh, Tokozani Kupe, one of the former vice presidents of the MDCT, over the name and all these kinds of things inside the party. Whether or not Chamisa's uh, grouping is going to be able to pull together some of these other disparate elements in a very fragmented opposition field. I mean, over 120 political parties are now registered in Zimbabwe. remains to be seen. There's been a lot of jockeying for positions, a lot of personality politics in play, very little conversation about policy, uh, which unfortunately is a reflection of where Zimbabwean politics is at the moment. But uh, I think this is the greatest cohesion we have seen uh, from from uh, some disparate elements within the opposition field for some time. Uh, and that's been gathering momentum over the last couple of months, and we've seen large rallies being held around the country by the MDC in areas where previously they had been restricted from operating. So it's a very interesting electoral playing field, but of course ZANU-PF have only really just opened up their election campaign and with huge resources in comparison to the MDC. Uh, what may happen, I was talking to one uh, political analyst in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago, he said that we're going to be bombarded with carrots and incentives uh, given that ZANU-PF's uh, operational modus operandi of restriction and coercion is, is, is going to be somewhat curtailed in the current environment. How much of that opening up of the political space is for show and how much of it is actually real and real opening up of the political space? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, It's open in terms of rallies being held, but we don't know what really goes on behind closed doors. A lot of the reporting on the ground uh, intimates that there is still an environment, an aura of of repression, intimidation, and so forth, but that that this is somewhat lighter than it was uh, uh, in previous months and previous years. So it's a question of whether Zimbabweans take the space that is opening up for them and whether they push that space uh, as active citizens. Uh, or whether they feel that uh, uh, they should keep their head below the parapet. As I said, one of the critical new factors in the equation is a significant 
uh, increase in the number of young people who have registered to vote, both in the rural and the urban areas. And that could be a game changer in Zimbabwe's politics. Uh, we've also heard that Zimbabweans who are not in Zimbabwe will not be allowed to vote. Uh, will that change in any way the way the election might go? Well, yes, the diaspora vote has been a outstanding problem, which, you know, unfortunately, the ruling party has resisted since the adoption of the new constitution in 2013, which extends uh, the right to vote. The the current government, including uh, the president, have hidden behind uh, uh, an argument that because they have a constituency-based system, people must come back to the country to register and, 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 and to vote in that way. Unfortunately, there's been a lack of imagination in play uh, by the Zimbabwean authorities and by their backers in terms of the donors to, to, to not come to the table and say, look, we could make the diaspora vote a reality, a real option. And of course, it would be much more preferable if this election had the diaspora uh, voting from different parts of or corners of the globe where they are at the moment. Unfortunately, that's been put on the back burner. One hopes that it is something that we will see the mechanics uh, put in place for a, an election in 2023, but it's going to have to be motivated for, and there's going to have to be a lot of lobbying. So for the moment, it's, not, it's, a, it's really a bit of a non-issue at the moment. Um, the new president has been trying to lobby investors. Um, do you think investors will be um, happy with the way things are being done at the moment? Well, you know, there's a big wait-and-see attitude towards Zimbabwe. While we hear the president talking about $15 billion worth of commitments and investments, very, uh, a very small percentage of that translates into actual uh, promises and, and, and undertakings. Uh, there is clearly an improved interest uh, uh, in the situation in Zimbabwe. There are new guidelines being put on the table for investment. Uh, there are new protections, new uh, systems in place for easing uh, uh, for improving the ease of doing business in Zimbabwe. So there's lots of positive movements, in term, particularly in terms of rhetoric, in terms of some of the policy uh, uh, developments and some of the institutional developments, like the creation of a one-stop shop for uh, the investment uh, groupings. Of, you know, Instead of having six or seven agencies that you went through, now they're going to have one, one major uh, central focal point for doing that. The quality of the investments are unclear. We haven't had transparency on exactly what those deals are all about, how Zimbabweans will benefit. And I think only when we see the the nature of the deals that are put on the table will be to really determine whether these are the kind of investments that Zimbabwe needs to progress its economic recovery. Um, the army contributed um, in a big way in putting President Mnangagwa into power. Um, should ZANU-PF, because the army has always been loyal to ZANU-PF, should ZANU-PF not win this election, we will, would we see the army allowing that situation to happen? Well, that's been a big question in the last few days following the utterances from the Deputy uh, Minister of Finance, uh, Honourable Terence McCoupe, who was caught on camera saying that the army uh, didn't uh, move in to remove Mugabe, only to let Shamisa uh, take over. Uh, the inference was clear uh, uh, that, that this was about the army not allowing uh, a democratic takeover of power if the NDC won. And of course, we have a history of statements from uh, the military about not saluting people who didn't have liberation movement credentials. And there is, of course, I think, a really uh, serious concern here. This is a armed formation of the army that came in and uh, uh, perpetrated a coup d'etat in November. Uh, what's to say that they would allow uh, a democratic handover of power uh, if 
the NDC indeed won. And it is it is noticeable that 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 and it's unclear why, notwithstanding the president making statements saying that he would accept the outcome of an election, you would have expected by now the military to come forward and make an unequivocal statement that they too would uphold the constitution uh, and would support whoever won a democratic election. The fact that they haven't raises a number of concerns in a number of places. All right, sure. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, uh, Piers Pigu there. He is the Southern African Director at the International Crisis Group. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 1716 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time this hour. Let's move down south now to South Africa where the National Assembly has passed the landmark minimum wage bill. Under the bill, the salaries of more than 6 million will increase. However, some critics, including Labour Federation, SAFTU, have described 20 rand per hour as an insult. The bill, as adopted alongside the basic conditions of employment, and the labor relations bills. More from spokesperson at the South African Federation of Trade Unions, Patrick Craven. Yes, the South African Federation of Trade Unions is extremely disappointed, although not altogether surprised, because it was clear the ANC was going to get this through. Not because we're against a national minimum wage, in fact, we're all in favor of it, but it's the level at which this particular national minimum wage has been set, which we find so objectionable. Both the President and the Minister of Labour speaking in Parliament admitted that 20 rand an hour is not a living wage. And we therefore are asking why are we legislating and uh, legitimizing a wage which even its supporters admit is not enough to live on. It is just unbelievable. We want a living wage on which people can live a decent life. On that point of that living wage, I mean, you have tabled 12,500 as what should be the minimum wage. Let's talk about how you came to this figure and, and whether you do believe that it's attainable or feasible in our current economic climate. The um, figure of 12,500 was first raised by the mine workers at Marikana who were on strike five years ago, and many of them... Uh, lost their lives fighting for that demand. And we believe that that was, in fact, entirely reasonable. The argument about sustainability always seems to miss the point. One of the main reasons why the economy is growing so slowly and unemployment is rising so fast is that millions of South Africans are living in abject poverty and simply cannot afford to buy more than the basic essentials just to keep alive. A minimum wage at a reasonable level will uh, create jobs because people will have more money to spend and this will um, create demand for goods and services which in turn will create more jobs. This is not just a theory, it's happened in other countries, many of which now have a national minimum wage and the uh, experience is that none of them suffer big job losses. In some cases, notably in Brazil under former President Lula, who increased the minimum wage and increased social grants, it led to a boom in the economy because there was so much more money in circulation that jobs were being created and the economy was moving forward. 
And we think that it would be equally true in South Africa, which has an exceptionally large number of people living in poverty. Another reason why this minimum wage of 20 rand an hour is so unacceptable is that we are the most unequal society in the world. And we believe that this 20 rand an hour is entrenching that. It's more or less saying it's okay. We as a government are prepared to uh, have a situation where chief executives can earn a thousand times as much as the average wage, never mind the minimum wage. It's the highest differential anywhere in the world. So business can't argue that, well, it's unsustainable. They haven't got money. They clearly have a lot of money. But the last thing they want to use it for is to pay their workers a living wage. Now, your former union, Kasatu, supports this minimum wage. Do you think your struggle for decent minimum wage would have been easier if you were part of a NEDLAC? Well, we might still have been outvoted at NEDLAC, but we would have exposed what was going on at a much earlier stage because we believe that uh, Kasatu, Fedusa and Naktu didn't have any clear mandate from their members. And this agreement was reached behind their backs. And we believe many of the members of those unions uh, will agree with us, particularly now they've seen what it uh, actually is going to mean. Yes, we would have made a lot of noise. We would have certainly not signed the agreement, which um, paved the way for the law which was passed. And we believe, or not believe, we're certain that we were deliberately kept out of NEDLAC because just before SAFTU uh, was launched, NEDLAC passed a new rule that in order to affiliate to NEDLAC, a trade union federation would have to have been in existence for two years and have audited accounts for those two years. Now, this meant that SAFTU could never possibly have affiliated because it was only uh, launched in April last year, and so it's still well under two years old. So, uh, yes, we think it was deliberate, and we're going to insist that that rule be changed and that we should be allowed into uh, NEDLAC. And just uh, lastly, before we let you go, Mr. Craven, we've seen reports that uh, SAFTU has requested a meeting with uh, COSATU. What sort of issues is this meeting going to be tabling? The sort of issues we feel we need to talk about, on which we hope we can reach some kind of uh, consensus, is the high levels of unemployment, poverty and uh, inequality, plus the privatisation plans which the government is now talking about. These are all issues on which all workers have a common interest and we should, as far as possible, try to work together. And certainly we will be working with the, um, the members of other unions, even if we can't convince the leaders. But I hope that uh, some good will come out of this and we will move a step further towards the goal of one federation for one country, which is the historical demand that Kasatu in its uh, good days used to campaign for. Madagascar's ruling party says it is open to holding negotiations with the opposition few days after a court ordered a coalition government to be formed to end the island's political crisis. The country has been rocked by violent protests against President Heri Rajano Raimbainina over electoral laws that the opposition says bar their candidates from participating in elections expected this year. The president is expected to announce a coalition government today in compliance with the High Court's order. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujarere caught up with the with Ramaro Sawona Farah, member of a platform of Malagasy civil society organizations, and asked him about the mood in the country in light of the pending dissolution of the government.
I didn't respect the, the constitution about the installing of a uh, high court of justice, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of deadline. You were supposed to install the, the, the High Court of Justice within, um, within, I think, 40 days after his installment. So he didn't do it, and now the deputies uh, uh, requested is uh, stepping down, and uh, the court saying that it was... Uh, the request was receivable first, and they recognized that... Uh, the president did not respect uh, the um, the constitution, but it didn't. They didn't give uh, the court didn't give the um, sanction. Has the president uh, dissolved the government yet? Uh, no, the the government, the current government, is supposed to resi- uh, present his resign resignation today or tomorrow. Uh, and, do we know who is likely to be appointed the new prime minister? I, I, I don't know. There's a name. They give the name of uh, the former minister of justice during the transition. The woman. This is. Uh, it is said in the newspaper that it will be uh, the former minister of justice uh, during the transition. And they, it's. A, the woman who made part of the government during the during the transition from 29 to 2014. And are other political parties happy with her? I mean, uh, you know, during the transition, there was so much corruption, and and that that minister was corrupt, you know. And we are all afraid of that nomination if it if it if it if she is going to be the. Prime Minister, we as a civil society, we want a government we would, we will be where there will not be political parties in, in it to preserve you know, the neutrality. Do you say that? So you want somebody who is not affiliated to any political parties? That's it. Because we have to, we have to lead the election process. In a, you know that in a neutral way, and to preserve that, and it is to prevent, you know, post-electoral crisis, crisis because we, all the conditions must be met, you know, uh, to be uh, to to be accepted by all the stakeholders, civil society included. Do you think the country is ready to hold a free and fair election? We, we, we are working for that. You know, we are working for uh, uh, those political parties that are doing whatever they want. And we, we as civil society, we want it to. We want, we want a free and fair election, of course. And we are working for that. And uh, I, I think it's just those two all our uh, all political parties they are working for uh, the, the for that i think some of them are working for that but some are i just want just want to uh, keep their power now what are madagascan saying about the pending dissolution of government i i i, I think people are people here are happy with that because this this government this ruling power has not done anything corruption about security and uh, um, I think most of the people are happy with that but we want but the, the, the issue is to have uh, now the next government that is Rama Rosawana Farah
who is a member of a platform of Malagasy civil society organizations. On the line from Antananarivo in Madagascar, and she was in conversation there with Kumbero Mujarare. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism, um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen, you see. It was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Kule Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report. A program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times: Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is now time for news headlines. Here's Onelin Zinti. Zimbabweans outside the country will not be allowed in the 30th July presidential and parliamentary general elections. Migrants continue to die in their quest to reach Europe and a Russian dissident journalist who was reported murdered in Kiev in Ukraine has dramatically reappeared alive and well in the middle of a briefing. Channel African News, I'm Onelian Sinsi. This is Africa Digest.
It is 17.30 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. You can email us. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, rival Libyan factions have agreed on a declaration that would create a political framework to pave the way for elections in December to end the country's seven-year-old conflict. French President Emmanuel Macron, who hosted the meeting between the rival groups, lauded the eight-point declaration as a crucial step towards stabilizing the North African country which was plunged into chaos after the 2011 uprising that toppled and killed former leader Muammar Gaddafi. General Africa's Kumbero Mujarere spoke to Abdullah al-Zabedi, former Libyan ambassador to South Africa, about the significance of the declaration. I think there is one major obstacle to any agreement made, either through the United Nations or uh, by regional organizations, because of the, it doesn't take into account the role of the militia. Unless there is action to neutralize the militia, many parts of the country, including the capital, then there will not be, no one will be able to implement any any of these uh, agreements. You know, in 2012, the militias kidnapped and imprisoned the Prime Minister, Ali Zaydan, for two days. Uh, after the, That was after the two 2012 elections. After the two 2014 elections, it was a big military campaign led by the Masrata militias, extremist militias. All, all, most of these are Islamist militias. And uh, they... Uh, they led a big operation and they turned against the results of the elections because their allies, the Islamic Brotherhood, lost the elections. So this is what happens after every elections. We have two major elections, 2012, and they were all uh, destroyed by the results of which were destroyed by these militias. So any serious international or United Nations or regional organizations initiative should have, number one, neutralization of all the the militant militias, especially the Islamist ones. Otherwise, they will just uh, foil the elections. Now, the emphasis will be on committing to the United Nations-backed presidential and parliamentary elections by the end of the year. And I suppose uh, there will also be a push to unify at the army and adopt a newly drafted constitution too. You don't think this all will happen in light of the declaration that was made in Paris? Of course, we are talking about uh, from now until then about six months, the elections. It's going to be on the 10th of December. Sure. And in September, they're supposed to find the background, the constitutional background on which to hold the elections. Uh, This will probably... uh, he also frustrated by the uh, Islamist uh, part of the agreement who who do not want any unification of, of the army. They don't want even an army. They don't believe in having an army at all because they think that's a danger to their gains and a danger to what they have achieved so far, which is the control of the capital, the control of the central bank, control whatever, whatever is left of the Libyan state. So the problem is that, you know, it would be ideal to have a Libyan army, you know, especially we have the basis of that in the East. If it is joined by the army in the real army, I'm talking, I'm not talking about militias now, the former army, which also was marginalized by Gaddafi as well. This is why the militias managed to control Libya, because there was no army like in Egypt and like in Tunisia. So if you manage to do that within six months, that would be ideal. And then they will be able to, uh, you know, the protect the elections and everything else. Other than that, you know, they will be just uh, repeating of the old mistakes of not neutralizing the militias first.
and then have the elections. What role, uh, Mr. Al-Zabedi, do you think the United Nations uh, can play here uh, in order to break uh, the impasse? They should reorganize their priorities. The priority, priority number one in Libya, how to neutralize or how to uh, control the militias, at least to to keep them out for, for, for the time being outside the cities. That's priority number the United Nations or any regional organizations like the African Union or a combination of regional organizations get together with the United Nations. If they are really serious and they have not been serious so far, they should take into consideration this is as the first priority. That is the voice of Abdullah Al-Zubedi, who is the former Libyan ambassador to South Africa, talking about that declaration that would create a political framework to pave the way for elections to be held in Libya in December. Abdullahi Al-Zubedi was talking to my colleague Kumbero Munjarere earlier today. Your time is 17.35. Now, well, it's 17.36 Central African time. Now, Amnesty International says thousands of women and girls who survived the brutal rule of the Boko Haram armed group have since been further abused by the Nigerian security forces who claim to be rescuing them. In a recent uh, report titled They Betrayed Us, the rights group reveals how the Nigerian military and civilian joint task force have separated women from their husbands and confined them in remote satellite camps where they have been raped, sometimes in exchange for food. Amnesty International says it has collected evidence that thousands of people have starved to death in the camps in Borno State, northeast Nigeria, since 2015. To discuss this further, we have on the line Amnesty International campaigner Esther Ikubache. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Esther. Thank you very much. Um, now, as Amnesty International says, it has collected evidence since 2015. What were the f- main findings of this evidence? Uh, our fact-finding report on the horrendous human rights abuses uh, committed by the Nigerian military, uh, particularly with respect to the internally displaced persons, uh, specifically women in Northeast Nigeria, documented uh, rape, confinement, starvation, and death in this IDP camp. Mm, um, you also then say that men get separated from their wives. Where do the wives get taken? What we found out based on our research was that while the Nigerian military forces uh, conducted their operations in northeast Nigeria. Uh, they specifically told uh, people in town to relocate, to move into the recaptured town uh, which, they, which were under their control. And what they did was to burn their houses and forcibly displace uh, hundreds of the inhabitants, uh, inhabitants of this uh, community and they moved them to this so-called satellite camp. While in the camp, they conducted a screening operation, screening the men, the women, and the children. So what we basically found out was that men were separated from the women and taken into detention facilities. The women were taken into the internally displaced uh, camp where they suffered further abuse, in terms of rape, starvation, 
and even death in the hands of the Nigerian security forces. Hold on, you are saying that the Nigerian security forces also forcibly displace, further displace people? Yes, that was exactly what we found out in our report. Uh, Because what we found out was that they asked these people who were not in any way affected by the ongoing conflict uh, against Boko Haram to leave their villages, to leave uh, their houses, and move into the satellite town, uh, you know, which they set up. So that was why we said they possibly displaced hundreds of people from their homes. Do authorities in Nigeria know about this? Uh, when we read our report, uh, we made our findings known to the authorities. We wrote to uh, the relevant authorities, highlighting our findings, raising our concerns about the horrendous human rights abuses that we have discovered based on research. Till this, even as I speak to you, uh, we have not received any form of response in terms of uh, formal communication to us uh, in terms of what exactly uh, the issues we have highlighted. We have not gotten any response from them to this. Mm. Um, you are telling us that the um, women would be abused. What would then happen to the men? What we found out was that till date, the men are unaccounted for. And that's why we are asking the Nigerian authorities to come clean on these hundreds of people who have been possibly disappeared. Their, their loved ones, their wives, their sisters, their daughters, don't know where they are till this. There has been no formal communication with regards to what exactly happened to them. Uh, the scope of women that we interviewed during our research have told us specifically that till this, uh, they've been able to collect over 1,500 names of missing men and young boys uh, with, between the ages of 14 and 40 uh, till this they still don't know their whereabouts. It's three years on uh, and nothing has been heard about these people. Mm. Um, and uh, the women, where are they now? Because we know what's happened to them, um, but where are they? The women that we covered in our report specifically uh, are currently at the camp for the internally displaced persons in Burma, northeastern Nigeria, uh, in Borno State, uh, and what we have uh, found out that is that these women are facing very terrible uh, conditions in terms of starvation, in terms of lack of access to food and other humanitarian assistance that is required. And uh, they even suffer more in terms of injustice, uh, particularly for the various uh, crimes that have been committed against them, which we see as not only crimes, uh, against, not only as war crimes, but also crimes against humanity. And that is why we are calling on the Nigerian government to ensure that justice is done, particularly regarding the rape of women. I mean, these women have been twice abused. They survived Boko Haram only to be raped by Nigerian security forces in the name of being rescued. This is really uh, of huge concern to Amnesty International and uh, we're also calling on Nigerian authorities to do the needful, to come clean 
and, and ensure that justice is done for these women. In your view, would you say that the Nigerian security forces have adequate training um, to rescue victims of, of the Boko Haram insurgency? I think one thing that is very important to understand here is beyond the training that they may have received, uh, yeah. they may have uh, received, I yes. think uh, what is most important is to uh, see if they actually practice what they have been trained to do uh-huh. in terms of, uh, of international standards, uh, in, in, in terms of also compliance to international humanitarian standards. I think that for us is a big issue. So it's not just about the training that they have received, but compliance to international humanitarian standards and the rule of, of war and civilian engagement as well. Um, is there anyone who can help these women now? Sorry? Is there anyone who can, is there anyone who can help these women who have been twice abused now? I think the Nigerian authorities are in a huge position, in a very important position, to ensure that justice is done. And this is what we have repeatedly called for, not just with this report, but in our other reports that we have uh, issued, we have called for justice. We have also called for investigation into these violent crimes and crimes against humanity. We have asked them to come clean uh, if their, their men have been accused of, of rape and, and, and sexual violence. Then they need they, they need for investigation. They need to make uh, the findings of the presidential panel of investigation that was instituted uh, in August. 2017. We need to see that report. The report of the presidential investigative panel has to be made public. What have they found out? Because uh, at the at the initiation of this panel, uh, we, we spoke and we said if the panel has been instituted to investigate uh, allegations of human rights abuses by Nigerian security forces, not just in Northeast Nigeria but across the country, then there is need to release the report of this investigation and make the findings public. I think that's the way to go. Esther Ekobache, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Esther Ekobache there is with Amnesty International in Nigeria. It is 17.45 Central African time. Your economic news has Amanda Machaka. Apologies for that. Thank you, Spamilele. Good evening. South Africa's National Assembly has passed the landmark minimum wage bill. Under the bill, the salaries of more than 6 million will increase. However, some critics, including Labour Federation SAFTU, have described 20 rand per hour as an insult. The bill has adopted alongside the Basic Conditions of Employment Act and the Labour Relations Bill. Spokesperson of the South African Federation of Trade Unions, Pedro Craven. The South African Federation of Trade Unions is extremely disappointed, although not altogether surprised, because it was clear the ANC was going to get this through. Not because we're against a national minimum wage, in fact we're all in favour of it, but it's the level at which this particular national minimum wage has been set, which we find so objectionable. 
Both the President and the Minister of Labour speaking in Parliament admitted that 20 rand an hour is not a living wage. And we therefore are asking why are we legislating and uh, legitimising a wage which even its supporters admit is not enough to live on. Meanwhile, Agri SA has welcomed the passing of South Africa's National Minimum Wage Act by Parliament on Tuesday as a step towards certainty. However, the agriculture body says it's advising stakeholders to exercise caution about the effect the minimum wage will have on financially vulnerable farming operations. It's warned that many farming operations are already loss-making through a combination of drought conditions and low international commodity prices. Agri SA says it will focus on ensuring that all its members are aware of their rights and responsibilities in terms of the act. Uganda's telecommunications regulator says it's setting up a committee to investigate the local unit of South Africa's MTN group. This after uproar on social media about its mobile money policies. This week, dozens of MTN subscribers in Uganda took to Twitter to accuse it of making it nearly impossible to cancel a mobile money transaction made in error. As in neighboring Kenya, mobile money use has grown rapidly, fueled by the low penetration of banking services and the inability of many people to access loans or other products, products from banks. The system enables people to transfer cash and make payments on cell phones without a bank account. A spokesperson for MTN Uganda said the company had internal policies for money sent in error. High-end seaside development in Nigeria's megacity of Lagos could be fully operational in the next five years as uh, the West African nation's economy rebounds from its worst contraction in more than two decades. Eco Atlantic City is reportedly being built on a planned uh, 10-square-kilometer stretch of land that's being reclaimed from the Atlantic Ocean. And the final project is complete. As many as 250,000 people will be expected to live in the development where a three-bedroom apartment could cost almost $1 million U.S. million, according to online property listings. Construction slowed after a fall in oil prices in mid-2014, caused the economy of Nigeria, Africa's top crude producer, to contract. And around 1 million bank employees went on strike across India on Wednesday, demanding better pay and a government crackdown on companies who willfully default on loan payments. Some 5,000 workers chanted slogans and waved banners at a protest in the financial capital Mumbai as they claimed they were paying the price for India's mountain of bad debts. The Asian giant's troubled lenders have some of the highest levels of debt, in emerging markets weighed down by billions of dollars of non-performing assets, also known as bad loans. The two-day strike, which ends on Thursday, led to tens of thousands of branches of public sector and commercial banks downing their shutters, paralyzing operations in some parts of the country. The strikers are unhappy with the proposed 2% wage rise, which they have been offered. In the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 9.77 Botswana Pula, 10.32 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the dollar is at 3.73 Brazilian Heyao, 62.58 Russian Ruble, 6.772 Indian Rupee, 6.41 Chinese Yuan, and 12.59 South African Rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 86 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,300 and platinum at $903 per ounce. And the price of print crude oil is at $75.83 a barrel. That's how it's looking at this hour.
Thank you very much, Amanda. It's time for Sports News here as Network Chamane. With the latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto N.E.T.O. Chemani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with rugby news. Newly appointed Springbok captain Siakolisi says he was overcome with emotion when announced as captain and that it was a proud and humbling moment. Golisi says the magnitude of his appointment he will probably feel when he leads the team against England in the first test on June the 9th in Johannesburg and this week has just been focused on helping the squad to get into shape ahead of their test against Wales in Washington on Saturday. Golisi says he is a man of few words and Springbok coach Rasi Rasmus wants him just to play well. I think when I play my first game, it will really hit me that I'm a Springbok captain. You know, you know, I'm just proud to be a, um, just a captain, you know, and, and it, it means a lot uh, to me and it's, it's a huge privilege and an honour, you know, and I think I'll realise it when 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 I'm playing and when it's the it's the week of the of the test match, um, but for now I've just been working and and know, and doing what I have to do to help the guys that are going to Wales. You know we've been training as a Welsh kind of team, so we haven't really focused on England yet. So and and you know and the coaches didn't put a lot of pressure on me. All he wants for me is to. Is, is to play well and be the person that I am. Springbok coach Rasi Rasmus earlier today named his first Springbok team to play against Wales in Washington, D.C. on Saturday. Rasmus selected seven uncapped players in his starting lineup and a further six on the bench, and they will also travel with three non playing reserves in France, Malherbe, Cameron Wright, and Nizam Kar. Yeah, it's just uh, 23. It's obviously 26 guys touring with us, but uh, this, the, the 23 are really from fullback backwards, it's Kevin Bosch. 15, Travis Ismail, 14, Jesse Creel and Andre Estres in the centers, Marcus Zoloma, Pimpi, the left wing, Elton, Yankees and Ivan van Seyl, the uh, fly-off and scrum-off, Dan de Pria, 8, Opelma, Hodges, 7, Kwaka Smith, 6, Peter Steffs, the two, also the, the captain as well, Jason Jenkins, number 4, Tight Ted, Wilco Lowe, Chiller, Ralepele, is Hooker, and Oxen Chairs, uh, Lucet, reserves, Hooker is Akker van der Merwe, Lucet, Steven Kitschoff, Titus Thomas the Tui, Marvin Ori the backup lock, second Boozen Notche the backup loose forward, Ambrose Papier backup nine, Robert De Priya covering ten and twelve for us, Warwick Holland uh, covering the outside uh, outside backs for us, and as I said, obviously the Zalman France and Cameron Wright is the other three guys touring with us. On to football news. Egyptian star Amar Kamal flew all the way from Finland to collect his Telkom Knockout Player of the Tournament award at the Santin Convention Center in Johannesburg last night. Kamal joined the Finnish team HJK Helsinki from Bidvest Vets at the beginning of the year. He made 13 appearances for Vets before he had a fallout with coach Gavin Hunt. Kamal, who is a property of Egyptian giants Al-Akhli, was delighted with the award. Thank you. Uh, what a night for me today! It's a great night for sure. I happy because this is the first time I I, I won something outside like professional player. So that's something specialized for me. And uh, also I have to thank my old teammate. I I want to thank all my my coaches in Bedvest and management of Bedvest to give me the chance to to show my quality here. 
Zimbabwe star Ovidic Aruru is relishing the prospect of returning to the competition that reignited his career last season when he turns out for his country in the Kosafa Cup that got underway this week. The 29-year-old captained the Warriors to the title 12 months ago and was named a player of the tournament after begging six goals. He will be looking to do the same this year, although his arrival in 2018 is of a much higher profile following a solid season with Amazulu in the Premier Soccer League. The midfielder is looking forward to this Yes, Kosafa Cup taking place in Polokwane. Every game I play, I need to prove myself to, 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 to the people. Because uh, ever since I came here to South Africa, I never got an opportunity to, to showcase my talent. So when I went to Kosafa, I took that as an opportunity to showcase my talent and also represent my country because I've been missing uh, for the national team, everyone has been asking what's happening with me, why am I not playing for the national team, but when I got the chance, I said, no, let me grab it with both hands. Finally, in tennis news, top seed Simona Halep reached the second round of the French Open a day later than expected, and not without a fright as she recovered from a slow start to beat American Alison Riske 2-6-6-1-6-1 today. After having to wait until the fourth day of the tournament to begin her campaign for a first Grand Slam title, Halep will be in action again tomorrow against American wildcat Taylor Townsend. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and Ito This is Africa Digest. Let us recap our top stories. Zimbabwe will hold its general elections on July 30. Thousands of women and girls who survived the brutal rule of the Boko Haram have since been further abused by Nigerian security forces, according to Amnesty International. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Ronald Apiri, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. Info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus. Two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with uh, Shona Jobate, and the song is called Gambia.